Oddities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach, and I am invisible, and I am wet. <laughs> can I? Can I just read? Because this movie had a plethora of them, the the alternate things I wanted to say at the start of this episode. Uh, one is, I'm late for a meeting with Spain and Portugal. I thought that was great. Uh, another one from Hector Elizondo. I've never put on pantyhose, but it sounds dangerous. Another one, probably the most kind of keyed in to our podcast, is when Heather Matarazzo's character says, I just found out that my cable show reaches 12 people. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, one of my favorite lines from the movie, I'm still waiting for normal body parts to arrive. (laughs) We are continuing on the 2001 Fort year. I want to remind everybody, this is Zach's baby. With The Princess Diaries, the G-rated Disney movie, The Princess Diaries. I think I have a good few talking points to bring up, but I think the best way to start is, why the hell did you subject us to this, Zach? <laughs> because, Rob, it's an integral part of the fort year. I don't make the rules. I just picked is the most it- important film. Is it is it integral? Is it really integral? Couldn't we have swapped yes. this week's episode out with Cruella? I'm sorry, I'm picking it. I'm picking it open wounds now at this point. <laughs> well, I, I seriously, we're 60 seconds into the recording. He had to use the c word. Uh, just so everyone knows, Zach hates Cruella. Rob kind of loves it. So I that might need. That's all that needs to be said. Maybe we'll get an outcry of fans wanting to talk about it. But I I want to know, Zach. One. Why is this on the fort year? Why is it integral to the fort year? Two, did you see this in theaters? Uh, Three, was this pumped into your eyeballs by the Disney Channel marketing campaign uh, from the early 2000s? Uh, uh, No, no, possibly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, no, the reason why this is part of the fort year is that it is, in my opinion, an integral part of 2001 summer because it was a film that, like it was successful it does have some semblance of a cultural footprint yep because it is the film that gave us Anne hathaway uh for better or for worse sure, somewhere she's still sure. giving somewhere she's still giving her acceptance speech for ladies rob <laughs> and so like it has to be discussed because i think i mentioned that it tied in a little bit to my context of the score when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago um my only memory of this from 2001 was other than the fact that like it existed was that i can remember my nephew went to go see this and i remember him very vividly telling me about the part about her leg popping when she kisses somebody yeah and he made a again what should have been a canary in the coal mine at the time the amount of emphasis he placed on this as a seven-year-old should have been one of those things like hmm like like (laughs) like everyone should just picked up on this other than me who was eight at the time going on nine but uh no that was kind of my only context for this was that him telling me about it because he was enamored with this movie in the summer of 2001 that's another reason why i feel it's a uh, integral part of the nostalgic uh, facets of the fort year okay and also for the pop song miracles happen by mira because oh, i remember hearing this song a lot on the disney channel in 2001 and to this day it is very much on numerous playlists of mine on spotify i'm surprised you didn't say heartbreak lullaby because uh... i will get to that that's <laughs> okay. part of the okay. 
That's Don't let me step the... on your toes with that one. Absolutely, Damn right. Rob. <laughs> Don't make me use the C word, Rob. Don't make me use the C word on you. So, yes, of course. I think what we're both saying is that Cruella is an allegory for uh, the creation and existence of pop music, and uh, we can stop there about that movie now. Other Cruella than fact... is an allegory for the Holocaust because it's a nightmare that got progressively worse <laughs> until it abruptly ended when the Russians and the Americans came to liberate everyone. <laughs> I almost did a spit take when you said that. that <laughs> <laughs> no, so so I think I, I think I mentioned last week, um, you know, when we were finishing up that episode. Oh shit! What was it? Planet of the Apes is is the week before this. Uh, who knows? Other than our audience, and they're yelling at us right now. I I'm pretty sure I said that. You know, I had never seen this movie before, and that that's actually a hundred percent true. I have never seen the Princess Diaries. I was just pumped advertising into my eyeballs from the Disney Channel. Like, the things that I remembered about this movie are the trailer moments. And, you know, one of the big... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. One of the big ones of those is, you know, Julie Andrews saying, you're a princess, and Anne Hathaway going, shut up! And I just remember that. I did... I've never seen this movie. I watched it for the first time in preparation for this recording. And, you know, this might be another point of contention, Zach. I don't love this movie. I don't hate it. I find it stupidly charming. Like, I kind of enjoy aspects of it. As a whole, it's really long and drawn out and, you know, maybe like uh, emaciated in the sense that it doesn't have a lot going for it. Emaciated being probably the best word to use. Sure, but when it comes together, I have to say, that last, like, 10, 15 minutes... I kind of love the last 10, 15 minutes. Like, when Anne Hathaway gives her speech at the uh, the ball of Genovia, or whatever hell we're supposed to think it is, I'm kind of like, yeah, I get it. I get why this movie made so much money, if that makes sense. Um, okay, I don't know what the hell's happened to Rob. I, goddamn Jeff Bezos spiked the Blu-ray he got in the mail. Okay, I buy... Um, I buy a few Blu-rays on Amazon, and Zach wants to make fun of me for owning physical media after years of me being the one digital. Okay, I'm sorry, I, Zach. I, I regret sending him the Elephant Man and giving him my VHS copy of Red <laughs> You too. opened the um, wrong door. <laughs> I, I opened Pandora's box. Um, okay, this is the thing. Is that like I, I've only seen this movie three times. I saw it sometime like in 2004. Did I'm you legitimately sure. text me you holding the VHS copy of this movie? <laughs> I just saw this. <laughs> it's, it's clear. It's your hand, right? <laughs> yes, Rob. It's my hand, and it's my room that you that. <laughs> yes, Rob. <laughs> I did. I did not fake this. I did not photo. I did not put my empty hand in front of a window and awkwardly Photoshop my fingers <laughs> with a, a VHS clamshell. <laughs> I, good to know. I can't pull the wool over your eyes. So, no, I only watched this movie a couple times before, like, I, I think twice, maybe three times, like, ever. Um, as I was watching it for this viewing on Disma Plus, I found this movie just, like, I, I think Rob said it perfectly. I've been looking for a word for the last couple days. Um, emaciated is the best one now yeah. that he said it. Uh, there is nothing to this movie. There, It's just, like, it's not a bad movie. It's just, like, hollow. Like, not at all. To... I, I want to agree with you there. It's not bad. It is emaciated. It's 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 as they say in the There's movie, nothing bulimic. You know, it's like you were looking at a husk of a story. Yeah, it's like the definition of like a chocolate bunny that's like so thin. Like if you just like <laughs> kind of like breathe too much near it, it'll just collapse. Sure. Um, I I I don't get why. There's no reason to like this film other than nostalgia. 
Okay. There is no. There are so many better stories out there that tell almost an identical story. Um, almost everybody in this film is unlikable because they have no character. Um, Julie Andrews' entire character is queen. Well, what kind of queen is she? Yeah. She's a queen. Okay. Uh, well, what is Anne Hathaway's character? She's homely in, in, in the klutz. <laughs> okay. What else is there to her? She's homely and she's a klutz until she's not homely anymore, but she's still a klutz. Okay. She straightens her hair. She's got the uh, the the movie trope of she's glasses ugly, you know? Yes. Like once yes. the girl takes the glasses off, it's like, whoa, she was actually really hot the whole time. And I'm sitting here like, yeah, I know that's the point of the movie, but Jesus, ugly Anne Hathaway riding a scooter might be everything I want from this movie, and that's the first <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> There's a lot of Anne Hathaway riding an electric scooter in this. Like if that's like, like if that's your kink, man, have you hit the bullseye? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's the thing. Like this movie is just so. I know I use the phrase a lot, painfully bland. Mm -hmm. Um, this movie's just like. It's it's bland, but it's also too long. There's no reason why this movie couldn't be 90 oh, minutes. Oh, God. There's a solid so, there's, 30 minutes too long. Absolutely. There's so much to trim from this movie that's so unnecessary. We have so many sequences of Anne Hathaway just doing something goofy, and then we cut to her at school doing what we just saw her do the exact same yeah. way yeah. like yeah. 20 minutes earlier. Then we cut to her being goofy. Like it's just there. there's nothing to it. Um, part of me like just wonders why this film resonated so much in 2001. I'm guessing because they, like, it was just a definition of just Disney programmed it well, and that there probably was nothing for that demographic. Um, like we'll, we'll look at other movies like in like later years, like something like the uh, Freaky Friday remake with Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis. Sure, there's a certain level of charm in that movie. A lot of it like riding on like the gimmick of like oh, watching Lindsay Lohan like act as an adult and Jamie Lee Curtis like behaving like a child. Yeah. There's there's your your hook. In this, you have Julie Andrews, like God, like I couldn't think of a better definition of playing in one's wheelhouse than what she's doing in this. I don't even think she's acting. I think they all honestly just had cue cards and she read off them because she's just <laughs> I don't even think she's acting. She's just just standing there talking. Um Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. She's playing her queen character to a fault of the movie. Absolutely. Anne Hathaway, considering it's her like like debut, yep. it's kind of shocking that she got any more work from this because she's just doing really nothing that a high school like drama student couldn't do. Yeah, yeah. She she's being so. One of the things that I want to talk about is Anne Hathaway. Of course, this is. I think this might be the first time on Cinemodities we're talking about Anne oh. Hathaway and. And we're talking about 19-year-old Anne Hathaway, and don't get mm -hmm. us wrong. I think Zach and I are both uh, men that are attracted to women. 19-year-old Anne Hathaway is a beautiful person. But here's the thing. I think that Anne Hathaway, someone I really like as an actress, which I don't know if Zach is aware of, I, I love actually watching interviews with Anne Hathaway. She's really, really fun in interviews. She seems so personable and so realistic and things like that. There's a great interview when I think they're talking to her about her movie One Day with Jim Sturgis, but it's right before The Dark Knight Rises comes out, and the interviewer goes on the tangent of, you know, uh, the, the suit that she's wearing to be Catwoman, to be Selena Kyle. And there's a really great, like, 50 seconds where the interviewer says something like, you know, how much weight did you lose to fit into that suit? And Anne Hathaway goes, oh, you forward young man, that's a... 
that's a question. And it, it's like, it's one of my favorite things that I love just her being like, oh, how dare you, you know? And she's, she's really seems like someone that I think we could get along with and that type of thing. And I, I love, I love that interview. And I Fans are really excited about this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it was a couple days ago we finally saw the first photos of you as Catwoman. How do you fit into that suit? <laughs> Uh, it takes three of us. <laughs> A lot of uh, lead time. Um, uh, Sit-ups, tricep curls, and, you know. But you're in phenomenal bench, shape right now. Bench kicks, I don't know. How, how much uh, weight have you lost to get into this shape right now? You did not just ask me that no, I'm question. I'm just saying, you're like. <gasps> what a forward whoa. young man you are. <sighs> My goodness. How much weight. I'm not saying you needed to lose weight. I'm just saying that you look... I've, t I've worked very hard to become Selena Kyle. I know you have. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm sorry if I offended you. You didn't at all. I'm just uh, messing with you. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> I love watching Anne Hathaway in interviews. You know, she does one with Stephen Colbert where she's talking about her wardrobe malfunction when her, like, side on a, on a dress suit splits and has to get it stitched up and... And this is this is one thing I love about Anne Hathaway. She seems like a real person when you are watching her outside of movies. And I think one of the appeals of Anne Hathaway as an actress is that, uh, th this might sound weird, but her mouth is so much of her face. Like, like <laughs> she comes across as the, to me, the female Jim Carrey. Like, Jim Carrey does a lot of stuff with his face, his facial expressions, and a lot of that rests on his mouth. And I feel like Anne Hathaway, in her earlier years, she's gotten away from it, you know, in, in maybe the last five to seven years, she has a mouth that can be expressive. And the scenes in this movie where she's making goofy faces during her princess training, she owns the screen. And I think that stuff is really, really cool. Other than that, She's just playing disengaged teenage girl. And I think that, to get back to what you were saying, that's the problem that we have with this movie, is that she's playing like, oh, somebody sat on me again. When, you know, she should be playing up to the nines, goofy, quirky teenager at this age. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I've never been particularly fond of Anne Hathaway. Uh, I, I've always found her just kind of like there. When Rob was saying, like, oh, like she was really good, I'm like, yeah. I was saying him to be like, oh, yeah, her and James Franco hosted the Oscars one year. It was phenomenal. It was so against type. And I'd be like, man, I don't know what the hell that Jeff Bezos put in that Blu-ray, man, but it must have been potent. So the thing about oh. Cruella is – no, I'm sorry. <laughs> the only thing that can make Cruella better, better is if it start Anne Hathaway instead of Emma Stone. Oh. I, I, actually, Anne Hathaway should be the, um, the villain character, if anything, you know? Didn't they, I'm, wait, I'm sorry. I'm not. We, we should not talk about Corella. We can. We, this will become a Corella episode if we keep harping on this. I'm sorry. I made that joke, Zach. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like I, it's hard to like judge Anne Hathaway in this because she is such like a new ingenue by the time this film is released. Yeah. So like I don't want to dump on her too much. I just again I blame this. Like, she's doing exactly what she's told, and that's probably all they want from her at the time. Mm -hmm. But it's just so. Like, like what the film has her do, like, she's not even, like, she's not even a character. She's just a, she's a walking, just, like, trope almost. Well, she's homely. Well, sure. Like you said, she's, I mean, she, she's not even, like, okay, hold on a sec. But, like, you look at, like, even the marketing for this and, like, one of the most probably 
most iconic posters from the 2001 Fort year is the one of Julie Andrews with her tiara and Queen's gown on. Yeah. And we have Anne Hathaway, but like we have her also in her queen or her princess outfit, but she has like dark sunglasses and headphones on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that is not indicative of the film at all. Oh, no, no, not at all. And that's the thing is that like, like, what is the plot of this film? It's like, oh, well-privileged teenage girl who whose only problem is that she's quiet and an introvert is offered to become part of a monarchy is woefully underprepared for it. And her family forces her into it. Yeah. It, it's the, I think you just put it really well. It's the extremes. Like we go from, you know, Anne Hathaway being uh, ugly in air quotes, you know, being invisible to her classmates to the extreme opposite of her being the center of media attention. And I, I think that, you know, type of character, that type of story lends itself to anyone being in that part, right? Like, you, you don't need an actress. You don't need someone to bring anything in that role. The role itself is so extreme that it's almost, you know, uh, dilapidating to a sense of whoever plays it. But I think it, the reason why – because I was looking at, like, again, again, the Bastion of Truth IMDb trivia. Oh, my favorite. Um, I, oh, God, yes. my favorite. Jesus Christ. Can we like, talk why... real quick? IMDb oh, trivia. It's the greatest thing ever. It's so true. Nothing on there is false. If you put it on there, it's true. Are we in agreement? <laughs> I think it's written in concrete afterwards. Um, but no, like based on what I was reading, there was like apparently every, like, almost like every, like a lot of like young actresses, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, were kind of like auditioning for this role. Yeah, yeah. And I get why they chose Anne Hathaway because she was a blank canvas. She came with no baggage. Because I heard things like, oh, they had they wanted like Kirsten Dunst, like Eliza Dushku, like a lot of people who had done things. So there was that like, oh yeah, I recognize her. Mm -hmm. um, so they wanted that again. They just wanted kind of like an, like a blank palette for the audience to project themselves on. Yes, and the audience being uh, seven year old girls and my uh, <laughs> nephew. Um, <laughs> somebody, so, somebody that was able to wear the um, the the uh, bushy eyebrows. The the yeah. curly hair, somebody to, to wear that makeup to an effective extent, which I think I'm in agreement with you. It had to be a blank canvas. It had to be somebody that nobody knew, and you wouldn't go, oh, you know, she's going to turn into a beautiful girl. You know, if if Mandy Moore, another actress from this movie, if she had been the lead role, we would have been distracted by the fact that oh, she's going to turn into Mandy Moore, and the fact that Anne Hathaway is unknown, and the fact that she is you know, a, a blank canvas, like we've been saying, that, that adds to the element of transformation that this movie uh, portends in the, you know, middle of the second act. Oh, definitely. But that's the thing, is that, like, but that's where my frustration with this movie comes from, is that, like, there's just nothing here to latch on to. Like, this is one of those movies that, like, if you had, like, a, like if I had a daughter one day, and it's like, oh, like, I want to watch some movies that I know you're kind of, like, uh, oh god inclined to enjoy mm -hmm. it's like there's there's just nothing there's nothing here there's so many movies that do this sort of thing better like again coming of age but at the same time they're like we don't see mia really even face any sort of adversity yeah. what is her adversity like, like her her adversity her struggles her her hurdles are so just beyond the pale when it comes to like your typical children or like teenagers not being able like, to oh, speak in public. Yeah, that's that's like the one thing we get set up at the beginning is that she has problems with public. Yeah, speaking. that that I get, but like everything else, like oh, dealing with the media. It's yeah. like that is such a, and this is what makes me. And this is what I was thinking about while I was watching this. 
you tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like the germ of this idea as a movie came from somebody. I don't know. Again, I know this was like based on a book series. Yeah. But obviously, I've heard that it was adapted. Not not as like drastically like adapted as other things have been. But like, I can't help but feel somebody sat there, looked at this, and said, "Wouldn't it be interesting if we had Princess Diana, but as a teenager?" Sure, that's actually. And, I, I honestly did not think of that, but you are absolutely right. What if we had the most public figure of the royal family in history be a teenage girl? A hundred percent. That's what it feels like because there's just like there's too much emphasis on the public persona media aspect of Mia's like struggles than there is for anything else. Yeah, like yeah. that seems to be like even when it comes to Julie Andrews's character. She seems more concerned with how media will handle the, like <laughs> the media than she does ruling ruling in quotation marks because there is a like, we got to talk about just like the 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 socio political landscape of Genovia. Um, <laughs> it's but it's like she, yes, Julie Andrews seems more, pause it, pause it. Okay, it just, it, it just feels like Julie Andrews <laughs> is more concerned with Mia's manipulation of the media than is the fact that like oh you are the figurehead of a country. Yeah, we have – Jesus, it's weird. With this, as boring as this movie is, we have so much to say, and I think this gets at what you were just getting at. Um, there's a line in this movie that basically says, if Mia doesn't accept the queenship, the country will cease to exist. And I'm like, what universe are we living in, you know? <laughs> Never mind. We have a baron and baroness who they say will take the throne yes, yes. if Mia does not like like take it. So I'm like – there, there's a what, tiny what subplot about the fact that, you know, people want the throne of Genovia, but as we are told as an audience, it will not exist if one stupid teenage girl says no to a question. <laughs> and you know what, Rob? I'll take this back. I'll say there's a, this is either was somebody got a little too enamored with the Princess Di story, mm-hmm. or someone's like, wouldn't it be great if we made an entire movie about Queen Amidala of Naboo being 14 years old? <laughs> It's one or the other. It's okay. one or the other. Okay. Yeah, you know what? You when you say that, this movie probably the thing that it was missing to really make it coherent and together as a structure, uh there's no point where they vote for no confidence. Y- you know? <laughs> can can Mia I make should, that Star Wars poll? That Minister. that's the only Star Wars poll I think I can make in this situation. <laughs> she should have called for a vote of no confidence against the prime minister. <laughs> oh, oh, two, there was a a, a beach scene we should have had Eric Von Detten go, I don't like sand. It gets in my asshole. Whoa, I don't whoa, like whoa, it. Whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa. That is in the second movie. Let's not jump the gun right now. That's when she becomes Senator Thermopolis. <laughs> okay. God damn it, Rob. <laughs> I didn't watch the second movie, so I did not know that, but um, I'm sorry. Rob, I'm making a Star Wars reference. I, I, it's a second. Well, well what, Jesus <laughs> Christ. I, not, a, not a question about what we're saying right now. A question as a whole. About this entire podcast. What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> not watching Corella. That's what they're not doing. Uh, Corella's great. Don't get me wrong. So now, Zach, I have, a, I have a question for you. I think there is a, a three-way race for best performance in this movie. And I want to – I don't – before oh, I get your opinion – There's one definitive answer to who No, no, yeah, and movie. you might have that definitive answer, but I want to throw out what I thought was the three-way, three-way race – these actors, and I want to know what you think. So, one, in this three-way race for best actor, we have Heather Matarazzo as Lily, the best friend of Anne Hathaway. Two, 
We have Larry Miller as Paolo Putinesca, who is the, the makeover artist, the fashion designer for Anne Hathaway. And three, in contention for best, best performance in this movie, Fat Louie the Cat. Who do you think wins? Who do you think of those Fat three? Louis. Fat, Fat Louie. Fat, Fat Louie. Okay, we're done. We're done. Snacks, how do we do this? Uh, no, <laughs> Fat Louie is fucking, the cat is fucking amazing. Like, I when the him. cat sits on the envelope at the end of the movie, I'm like, Jesus Christ, how do I get this cat in my house? I want this cat just to be near me. The cat is fucking great. Fat Louie is the best performance in the movie. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I love Larry Miller. Like, one of the things that we talked about off mic, I think, you know, a few days ago, before we recorded some other goddamn Cinematis episode, uh, I was like, Larry Miller's in this movie? Oh my god, I love Larry Miller. That's the truth. I really do like Larry Miller as an actor. He's one of the funniest actors that have ever existed. One of my favorite episodes of Aqua Teen Hunger Force is the one where he plays Larry Miller himself, and it's called The Larry Miller Hair System. And I was so excited to see Larry Miller in this movie. I was so excited to see a bunch of people in this movie. And it turns out that Fat Louie the Cat is the best fucking thing. <laughs> I will say, though, that, like, out of the three, like, choices I had, Heather Matarazzo, Matarazzo I, I have not seen her in a bunch of other things. Like, I recognize her. She's a character actor that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. But, like, that that's also not a character. That's just the, that's just the annoying best friend with the heart of gold. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I'm like, no. I'm like, it's that's, a, it's like, a that's, trope. She's playing a trope. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is fine. I, I, I don't I, definitely, I don't blame any of the actors in this movie except for Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews is sleepwalking through this, and she should have known better. Um, like, but going even to, uh, oh, God, whoever was you mentioned before. Oh God! What's his name? I'm having a uh, Larry a brain... Miller. Or, or, Larry or... Miller. Larry Miller okay. is just, but, but also too that like you couldn't even have that character in a movie these days because he'd be considered like insulting because he's too flamboyant. Yeah, he is. He's the you know fashion designer. He's the makeover artist in this movie, and it, this movie plays to the nines the fact that he whips out out of nowhere a hair dryer and combs like they're guns type of thing. He does, and he also – but, like, this goes back to your thing about, like, the, the trailer moments. Like, it's funny how you mentioned that, but, like, all the trailer moments are just, like, burned into my brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, 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 when he has, like, the two pictures of her, like, looking homely, and they pull them apart. Shut and it's, like, up! And, well, <laughs> that, too. But, like, then you have, like, Pretty Mia. Then you have him, like, trying to brush her hair and, like, in the brush breaks. Mm-hmm. The stuff like that. And it's just, like – he's, like – again, nobody in this film is a character. Everybody is just, like – a weird archetype. Uh, archetype is a good word. I, w- I was about to say they're all examples of this movie. It- it's kind of a weird thing to say. Is but that I- what you're calling it? Yeah, I-, I don't think this movie is a movie. It's examples of an idea that might form a movie one day. Like the the brush breaking, like the shut up, like the two pictures pulling apart, that type of thing. It's almost like... You know, th- this idea of the Princess Diaries gets written down. Of course, like we said, it's already – it's based on a book. But then it becomes almost a – I don't know. I want to say like anthology idea of a film. You know what I mean? Just real quick, not to do a quick aside, but I'm, like, I'm going through like the Actilist and IMDb. Okay. And like I'm Cruella, scrolling through. Sure. Let's talk about Corella aside, yeah. <laughs> sure. But I'm going through this and like one of the like pictures, like the avatars from one of the actors – 
is the Gorn from the like <laughs> famous like Star Trek episode where Kirk like just fights like the lizard man like yeah. on like the desert planet. Yeah, slow punches, <laughs> slow punches yeah. the episode, which everybody knows. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, and I just see that in like oh, apparently the actor that played the Gorn was Lord Fricker in the Princess Diaries. I just find that amazing. Who the fuck just is Lord Fricker? IMDb and just finding I, I I don't know, but I like the idea of the act. <laughs> I like the idea of the Gorn in the Princess Diaries. Like that's one way to make the movie infinitely more interesting. The Gorn are just there at the end. Can, can we just say that would have made this movie at least half a star better if the neighbor was not Mr. Robotussin, which is his legitimate name. It was the Gorn. <laughs> okay, how much do you think the writers pat themselves on the back? Oh, when they oh, named him God. Mr. Robotussin. Oh God, I'm so glad you asked me that question because when you know we are introduced to the neighbor in the very beginning of the movie, and Mia Anne Hathaway's character says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I knocked over your trash can, Mr. Robotussin." I went, "Wait, is his name actually Robotussin?" And then you know he is a writer who has a supposedly or ostensibly won an Emmy from what we hear in the dialogue, and he's a writer for a soap opera. I'm like, Jesus. This sucks, and it's one of the things that we think of, and I know I've made the joke tons of times before, where you you think of, like, picture this, all of the writers on this movie, how many there were, they're sitting in the room, and one of them goes, ah, he's a writer, he's, uh, he's very quiet, he's very down-toned, that type of thing, let's call him Mr. Robitussin, and all the other writers lean back in their chair and go, well, you got it, we're done for the day. And it's fucking infuriating how stupid it is. <laughs> it really, honest to God, is. Like, it's just... Like, but that's, like, the thing about this movie, though, is that, like, everything about this is uninspired. Everything. Yes, yes. It is, like, is, there... it is such an accomplishment in cliche. It might be invigorating in that sense, which is why I'm so angry about it when I say invigorating. But everything, even the scene I'm thinking of when... Fucking Sandra O oh is the vice principal, and and I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. oh, Sandra O oh is in something oh, other than Grey's Anatomy. Wow, and she's Im- impersonating the queen of Genovia, you know, Julie Andrews, and that scene is just like, oh my god, I know I'm watching a movie from 2001, but at the same time, this feels dated as hell. <laughs> Has, has there ever been an actress that feels so early 2000s quite like Sandra O? Oh. oh, yeah. Mm. Is there another actress that like, you see her in a movie and you're just like, oh, early 2000s? No. Like, has there ever been an actress that just, like, you see her and you know the exact time period the production no, was no, made? No, no, no. You're, you're not wrong because exactly what I just said. When I see Sandra O, oh, I go Grey's Anatomy. Early 2000s to mid-2000s Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Why is he Sandra O? Oh? You know what movie I think of? Grey's Anatomy. That's not a movie. Okay, well, we're about to get into a fifth fight today while we're talking. Grey's Anatomy is a cinematic experience. (laughs) Well, that I can't argue with, though. Don't you know that there's a point in Grey's Anatomy when Sandra O slips on ice, and she falls on her back on ice, and an icicle from the ceiling drops down and stabs her. I was there when we watched the soup episode together, (laughs) when they make reference to that. We watched that together in, like, 2008. God damn it, Rob. Stop telling me things. I, I was don't there know for. what movie you think of Sandra Owen because honestly, I never thought she was in a movie, period, until this one. <laughs> Under the Tuscan Sun with Diane oh, Link. I've never seen that. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. But the point being is that, like, 
everything in this movie, though, is like I don't even want to say like rounded edge because I don't even think that's a strong enough term. Sure, it's just it's like it's not even sanitized. It's just like again, it's if it, it, oh god, ethereal. Like it's just kind of just like like waving off around. Like it's almost trying to like yeah. capture fog in a jar. Yeah, there's so nothing this is something there. I wanted to ask you about in that exact point. You know, watching this and and knowing that it was a you know theatrical movie, doesn't this just feel like a Disney Channel original movie? That's <sighs> doesn't it feel it... that there's such a a layer of I, I think I think smog in the sense of uh, disconcern for actual filmmaking procedure. I I don't know. This felt like I was watching a TV movie. If that makes sense. I w- I will say, considering that we talked about quite a few Disney Channel original movies, yep, it is a little too polished for that. I I uh, yeah, that's where I relative, disagree. Relatively I speaking, I mm, only, okay, let me rephrase that. I think Absol- of like, Cheetah Girls, this, this... and this is more polished than Cheetah Girls. Don't get me wrong, but. I honestly think, like, Lemonade Mouth was better. And yes, don't get me wrong, Lemonade Mouth, I know, was like 10 years after this movie, something like that. This felt like I was watching a TV movie that was made for the big screen, and that infuriated me. I will say, okay, you're not wrong, but I think if you juxtapose them, then yes, but, like, distilled, like, looking at it just by itself, then no. Oh, sure, well, I think that might lead us into a bigger discussion of the fact that, you know... Was was this movie and writing and stuff like that the the lane, the pathway to making better Disney Channel original movies? Because that's another thing I want to talk about is the fact that I think this was like the the start of the runway to make things like Lemonade Mouth, like High School Musical, that really started to hit the nail on the head of what a Disney I, Channel original movie I, could be. I don't, I don't, I no. I, as somebody who's a uh, as shameful as is to say, like an expert on early two thousands Disney Channel, which I concede movies. to you, I, I am not an expert. You're the expert on this, and that's why you know I want. I just want to make clear that you will have the final say on that idea that I just presented. <laughs> no, because this is the thing. Like you, like I think you have this weird. Like it, it. This was a very weird time for Disney. And obviously, I think one thing we've mentioned, this is a Disney movie. Yes. Uh, God, like the early 2000s is weird because you have that weird sort of thing where like a lot of stuff was being greenlit. Because you have – because Hilary Duff also plays a huge role in like what the Disney Channel like experience would become because she is a template for like everything for the next like weirdly 10 to 15 years. I don't think the Princess Diaries could be roped into anything saying like laying the groundwork for Disney Channel original movies. If anything, I think probably what you think this film laid the groundwork for could be more attributed to something like um Cadet Kelly. Oh, I think okay. I think I think in all honesty the credit you're giving this film when it comes to Disney Channel original movies could probably lay at the feet of Cadet Kelly. Um, I think Princess Diaries, because I don't think without Princess Diaries, you don't get like Freaky Friday with Lindsay Lohan. I think it was the idea of like, because they both come out like in late July, early August. And they, I think Disney realized that kind of like, like corridor of the summer, like, like right before like school goes back in session was a good way to get like, like families into theaters. It's like, oh, the last like movie of the summer. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that when I, when I talk about this movie in relation to Disney Channel original movies, you're saying more that it is young female ingenue lead actress paving the way for that idea from Disney rather than what they were going to push on their channel. Is, am I getting I th- that I right? Think, I think so. Because then, 
the line also gets blo- again. I don't think you're wrong. I uh, your idea is wrong. I think it's that you're maybe a little ahead of the curve, because again, folks, I, I've spent way too much time thinking about this sort of thing. I love what you just said. Your idea is wrong, and that might be the best encapsulation of the full hour you and I talked about Corella before this discussion. Your idea is wrong. <laughs> Wonderful, Zach. I'm not saying I'm angry at Zach. He can tell me my idea is wrong. Just the way he phrased it, absolutely perfect. <laughs> but this is the thing, though. Is that, like, if you look at it, though, is that like the Lizzie McGuire movie comes out in two thousand May of two thousand three. Yeah, which means it went into production like roughly eight to twelve months in advance. Which means by like late two thousand one, they had the idea. Sure. And keep in mind, this movie comes out like what? july of of 2001 yeah i think it's a so late this, summer 2001 absolutely so that's the thing is that like this film might have been the the princess diaries might have been the germ of the idea of things were to come okay um i think i think disney started to realize like it was the very very beginning of like oh like like lee i kind of like young ingenue we can kind of like mold into any image we want and i think and again I think Anne Hathaway might have been even before Hilary Duff, like the very earliest incarnation mm-hmm. of that. Even though obviously Anne Hathaway didn't have like a music career or anything, I think it was the idea of like, oh, an actress we discovered, look what we can do. And Hilary Duff kind of became the 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 first example of that. But like, what would you call it? Anne Hathaway as Mia was like the most primitive version of what would later become the Disney like machine for actors. Yeah, I think what we're saying is that you know um, Lizzie McGuire, uh, Hilary Duff is the the whole package, where Anne Hathaway is skinny with a mouth, <laughs> more or less. But yes, I do think you're on to something though, but just maybe ahead of the curve. Okay, okay, no, that that's a fair point, and um, I think our our cinema audience might know if if not. Here's where we, we come from. I, I am a bigger fan of Anne Hathaway, where Zach is a bigger fan of Hilary Duff. You know, he's a... I don't want to blow up your spot, Zach, which I know is not blowing up your spot, but you love Lizzie McGuire. I remember you telling me about the Lizzie McGuire reboot for hours, you know, and that was a thing on Disney+. Plus. That, going did you know what finally... Did you know what... Yeah, you heard about that, right? That got canceled. They, they literally got shut down. I, I, I know it got shut down, but I only know this because you felt the need to talk to me about it. <laughs> I'm the one also, out of the two of us, I watched the entirety of The Haunting of Sharon Tate. <laughs> I remember you sent that to me, and you were like, "You were like, check this out." And I watched it, and I went to Zach, and I was like, "I watched the haunting of Sharon Tate," and Zach went, "Why?" And I was like, "Cause you fucking sent it to me." (laughs) Hey, hey, that was back when I was just sending you things. Is like a glorified, just like yeah, like archive. That that might be the uh, the start of you know. Uh, Zach and I's relationship of media might have needed a little ironing out in the details and stuff like that. But but no, honestly, you bring up a good point. And this is something that I actually want to track down is that, you know, Anne Hathaway gets this role. She is the princess of the Princess Diaries. Why wouldn't this be Hilary Duff? Why wouldn't this be someone who goes on to be a more well-known bankable actress because because this movie like you said is is Anne Hathaway's first film appearance it's the thing that kind of creates her as an actress why wouldn't they have given this to somebody who is more well-known and will go on to be more well-known and more well-rounded because of course 
My favorite Hillary Duff performance is when she shows up in Law and Order SVU. But what are your thoughts on that? On on the idea of not casting Hillary Duff? Well, Hillary Duff was too young at the time. Oh, okay. Good good point. Uh, age is a thing, sure. <laughs> that that's just what it is. It's just the age of it. Like no more, no less. And that but like this is the thing though. They realized like, okay, how old was he a half day when this was like in production, like seventeen years old? It was just kind 18, of like okay. eighteen or nineteen, yeah. Yeah. Okay, late teenage years. But still an adult. And that's the thing is that like, okay, like they realized they couldn't do anything with her in the sense of like, okay, like she wasn't young enough to sit there, like kind of like shape her. Again, keep in mind, Lizzie McGuire, like is filming in 1999. Hillary Duff is like 12, 13. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, and again, and they would go on to do the exact same thing with Hillary Duff. They tried, they, again, they plugged her in. And like I said, you wouldn't have Disney as a record label. Again, you wouldn't have Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, mm. any of these people, Demi Lovato, Zendaya, if it weren't for Hillary Duff. That's like, a you really just good point. The contrast of musical persona with film persona. And I think, you know, um, also watching the behind the scenes features of this movie, which I did. I watched a lot of behind the scenes features for this movie because they are available on Disney Plus. You need someone like Anne Hathaway at this point in time to be so unknown that it makes the character believable. Like, you know, if we had Mandy Moore as the title character, if we had, you know, uh, Hillary Duff, I almost said but, Lizzie Duff, uh, you, if you you would not, it would take you out of the movie, right? I don't, I don't know about that. I, I, I don't, honestly, I think it's like a, uh, oh God, it's the director of this, what, Gary Marshall? Gary Marshall, yep, yep. Look at the other films he directed. Like he did, like what was it? Uh, Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman, absolutely great. It's, it's he... great performance. I I don't know if Zach knows this. I love Pretty Woman. I love Julia Roberts. She has a pointy face, and she owns a pointy face. <laughs> I'm even a fan of Jesus. We might get to this one day. Uh, Dying Young, the Joel Schumacher romance, Dying Young, where Julie Julia Roberts is the the nurse for cancer-ridden Scott Campbell. And uh, I just want to say, not to get into this movie too hard, uh, love isn't a straight line. It's a maze. Continue, Zach, please. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know what that's in reference to, but uh, go, you go, Rob. No, that's an inside um, joke that no one gets but me. That's an inside joke with myself. <laughs> as long as Rob's happy. Um, okay, that's... so the dog with the eye patch and Corella is kind of great. No, okay, keep going, Zach, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I forgot what I was going to, no, but like, look at, okay, but this is the thing, though, like, we keep saying that, like, they, clearly their intent was to cast an actress that was unknown, had no baggage, for yeah. better or for worse, yeah. but I, I think it's the same thing that Gary Marshall does in Pretty Woman, like, you have the idea of, like, you clean, like, uh, Julia Roberts is a prostitute, or begins the film as a prostitute, and then, like, obviously she gets cleaned up by Richard Gere, mm-hmm. I think it's the same principle, it's, I think you could have cast any actress, a young actress, Again, Kirsten Dunst, like the list goes on and on. And I think as long as you make them convincingly look homely, I don't think it's a hard sell. I think this film is so vacuous. Okay. It's not a hard sell. I think it's just a matter of just how easy it is. It's the Taylor Swift, like, you belong with me music video thing. Is that as long as you make them look homely, it's not hard. That's where I kind of disagree with you is in the sense that, you know, ingenuity, if I might say that. It it is dependent on unknowability of Anne Hathaway. Like, could you imagine that... someone that we know wearing the the hairpiece and 
heavy eyebrows that Anne Hathaway wears in this movie, I think it I, rests on the fact that we don't know her. I, I don't think so. I think considering what this like the uh, demographic of this film was meant to appeal to, I think you'd be very hard-pressed as long as you put like, kind of like one iota of effort into it, I don't think it would have been a hard sell. See, I completely disagree. I think that that's exactly why we need somebody unknown. Here, here. Because okay, – Hold on a second. Yo, yo, pause. These are the – okay. This is the list of names that supposedly sure. – That um that they, they wanted for this role. Uh, Christina Applegate, Amanda Peet, Cameron Diaz, Alyssa Milano, Josie Davis, Kate Beckinsale, Tiffany Thiessen, Eva Mendez, Drew Barrymore, Reese Witherspoon, Alicia Silverstone – uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, Brittany Murphy, Katie Holmes, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Claire Danes, Kate Hudson, Christina Ricci, Jessica Alba, Jessica Biel, and Kirsten Dunst were all offered the role of Mia. I hate all uh, but of them. Down. I think I hate all of them except no. Tiffany Thiessen because Tiffany no. Thiessen is I, make that transition from TV to movie. No, I think you honestly like you could have given this. I can. Uh, Cameron Diaz is too pretty. Yes. Alyssa Milano, Alyssa Milano couldn't have done, could have done it. No question. Kate Beckinsale could have done it. Eva Mendes is too pretty. No, Drew Barrymore is too you, well known. What are you talking about? No. You know, who, you, you know who would have nailed this? You know who would have nailed it? Amanda Peet might be the next Christina best Ricci. option. Christine, Christina Ricci could have nailed this. No, Christina no. Ricci would have knocked this out. Don't you part. dare. Don't you dare infringe on Christina Ricci's career because, yes, I know she's have lo- had a lot of problems with eating disorders, which I'm very upset about because she should be better. But I don't want to infringe on Christina Ricci's career because she gets the speed racer. Nothing should infringe on that. Tiffany Thiessen, maybe with that TV to movie transition, and maybe Amanda Peet, maybe. But no, I am in total disagreement with what you're saying, Zach. Corella's a good think, movie. <laughs> I don't think Anne Hathaway brings anything unique to this film that I, you couldn't uh, get from another actress. No, I completely disagree because of that last 15 minutes. You need an actress to own that last 15 minutes in addition to the rest of the movie to make this something, you know, a, a, a Bildungsroman, a coming-of-age story that works in every sense of the phrase. I, oh, God... You you mentioned a few others that popped out to me that I think would have worked, but most of what you said is negative. I am negative against it. Absolutely. Tiffany Thiessen might be the next best choice because she is going from, you know, Saved by the Bell to a movie. That might have been the, the point in time to do it in the early 2000s, right? Maybe. But I, like I said, I, you'd be. I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who wouldn't be able to just like do the exact same job that Anne Hathaway does in well, this. Well, here's here's the thing: is that I think a a lot of this movie, as I think both of us agree, is as boring as shit and is way too long, and you know is is a stupidly charming movie. Like I said, I don't think it's charming. I don't think it's charming. Oh, That's really? where you oh, might disagree. Oh shit! Okay, I I, I told think... you this movie is hollow to me. It's like ethereal. It's like it's it, there's nothing to it. I think it's stupidly charming in the sense that the the last like you know ten to fifteen minutes is transcendent in what it's going for. But maybe we'll talk about that later. The other thing that I think of is you know. Can we have somebody, can we have an actress, can we have an Anne Hathaway place in that delivers the line, and I quote, my expectation in life is to be invisible, and I'm good at it. Can we have somebody to accomplish that exactly as Anne Hathaway does? Because you can't have a Lizzie McGuire, fuck, Hilary Duff, 
You can't have her be invisible. She's goddamn Hillary Duff. It's like what you said a few weeks ago when we were talking about, you know, Charlton Heston wanting to be in Jaws, and Steven Spielberg says, the shark doesn't have a prayer. You're Charlton Heston. There's there's a baggage that comes with Rob, your performance. Rob, are you comparing Charlton Heston in the mid-'70s to Anne Hathaway in 2001? I'm comparing the idea. That's insane. That is an insane comparison, okay, and I think you have to acknowledge Real quick, it also— not- Cruella, fantastic movie. But Oh, God. Is, is that going to be your smokescreen <laughs> going forward? <laughs> Maybe. But you, you have to know what I'm saying is that you, you need an actress to deliver the line, my expectation in life is to be invisible and to be good at it. You need an actress to deliver that reasonably and, like, honestly, you have to own that line. And Anne Hathaway being so new works that way. You know what I'm saying? I don't deny that Anne Hathaway doesn't work. I just don't think she does anything that's, that that couldn't be duplicated by another actress. Yeah, yeah. This is this is where we clearly disagree because I I like Anne Hathaway in this role. And when you're saying these other actresses, actors, whatever you want to gender pronouns you want to put on these things, it, it's it's the fact that I I don't know if there's anybody better than Anne Hathaway. Christina Ricci. No, God. Okay, <laughs> my problem with that is that Christina Ricci's career in the Adams Family movies is so great and goes on to be in Speed Racer where she's so fantastic. I don't want to derail that. And and maybe that's the difference that we're talking about is the fact that, you know— Okay, Rob, we're, uh, Rob okay, for the record, when, we, when we're, like, substituting different actors, we're not saying, oh, by casting her in Princess Diaries, her, her role as Trixie I, Speed Racer I, dissipates. I know that's di- where you're coming it's, it's, from, but that's exclusive. how I feel. <laughs> I feel like we're disrupting the space-time continuum when we do this is, discussion. Is, is that how it works, Rob, now? We I, I think—that's I, I, how I feel, you know? I, I, I feel like we are— changing the fabric of reality when we have these conversations and maybe our audience our cinema audience can write in and tell us about this fact and be like no rob and zach we want you to pitch new ideas where i think when we talk about this we're changing the reality of movies that we love (laughs) Uh. (sighs) yeah i like i said i don't think there's anything that you couldn't duplicate with anybody else. I yeah. Well, well, here's another thing. Here's a, here's another pitch that I want to throw at you. We get a scene when when uh, Anne Hathaway's character Mia first shows up to the uh, royal palace, the embassy, I think they might call it, and uh, the security guards are going through her backpack, and her response is, "Please don't crush my soy nuts." Is there any actress that could deliver that line better than she does in that scene? I think this yes. is one of the. St- no, who, who, and don't Christina say Lizzie McGuire. Jesus Christ! <laughs> oh my God, we are done with Christina Ricci. We are done with her. She's Wednesday Adams. She's fantastic. God damn it, Zach. Okay, well, one, I think now Rob, I'm gonna, Rob, I'm, I'm gonna all my chips on the hand that has Christina Ricci. <laughs> That's the hill I'm dying on. I was about to say the same thing on this episode. Rob is going to die on the hill of how Corella is so good, and Zach going to die on the hill of how Christina Ricci should have been in this movie. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, well, well, with you saying that, let me change gears a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, I want to talk about locations in this movie. Yeah, and, of San course, San Francisco. San Francisco, 100%. This movie takes place in San Francisco. 
I want to talk about in <laughs> very, very self-indulgently. I would never do this unless, you know, I had the the actual opportunity, which I have now, about, you know, talking about a podcast uh, that I pay for. And, and Zach, don't get me wrong. You've paid for as well. I'm not trying to ship you out on this. But San Francisco. The year was 2006. I missed some days of school to travel in 2006 to the Yu-Gi-Oh! National Championship. This is so, a very weird turn. Oh, it's a very weird turn, and I hope everybody loves this. So here's the thing. I traveled the country. Literally, me and my dad, which I will forever love my father for doing, drove us across the country. We both played Yu-Gi-Oh!, we went everywhere that you can find in the Eastern Time Zone. You name a city, fuck it, we were there. We were playing Yu-Gi-Oh! on a professional level. And in early 2006, we went to a Yu-Gi-Oh! regional tournament in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, in which I came in third place. Out of hundreds of people, I came in third place. And it's one of the greatest stories that I think, you know, if anybody who knows Yu-Gi-Oh! can really get into, the fact that I went 7-1. and one. So here's the thing. As I played through this tournament, which are Swiss-style, uh, you know, you, you don't get eliminated if you lose. You keep playing people, and, and there's a, a record-keeping establishment or aspect of Yu-Gi-Oh! tournaments. I won seven games, and I lost one. The one that I lost was against a guy who was playing a narrow pass constriction deck. And it was wild, because nobody in the history of Yu-Gi-Oh! had really honed in narrow pass the way that he did. And I felt very comfortable and accomplished losing to this man. And at the time, 2006, I'm like 12, 11, or 12 years old. And I lost to somebody, and I went, wow, this is something manageably reasonable. Like, I get where you're coming from. And I went 7-1. and one. Like I said, 7 wins, 1 loss. At the end of the day, I made it into the top 8. Out of 7-1, and one, I was one of the people that made it into the final 8 that got to play in elimination rounds. And this is a big deal in any tournament, Yu-Gi-Oh!-wise, back when Upper Deck Entertainment was running it, that I was one of that final 8. And Zach... I had to play in my first round of the top eight the same guy that I lost to. I had to play the fucking narrow pass constriction deck. And I think that as a proud moment of my life, I was able to learn and recover and understand what he was doing. And I beat him in my first round of the top eight in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. I beat the guy that I lost to, the only guy that I lost to in this tournament. And since I beat him, even though I lost the next round and came in third, uh, I got my place in the Yu-Gi-Oh! National Championships, which is invite-only, if anybody remembers from way back when, before Konami took it over, it was Upper Deck Entertainment, you had to win a spot into the Nationals. Later that year, my entire family takes a trip to San Francisco. And that's where oh, that's this where the movie story was going. Exactly, Zach. I'm I'm so oh glad that you did not yell at me for for going on that diatribe. I went to San Francisco in that is a Zach level diatribe. 2006 because I had won a trip to the Yu-Gi-Oh National Championships. Now, one, don't get me wrong, 
I did not get anywhere close to the, the front runners of the Yu-Gi-Oh! National Championships. I was a regional player at best. Never get me wrong. I'm not saying anything different. But 2006, San Francisco Nationals, that was the year it was won by 13-year-old Austin Coleman, who I played in the second round of Nationals. I lost to him. Jesus Christ, because we're talking about the era of return from a different dimension. We're talking about the era of, you know, the non-creativity of Monarchs and Cyber Dragon that I was playing. And I, I look back and that and I go, wow, I had no originality. I was doing what the metagame was. But I played the national champion of 2006. And now here's the thing that I really want to get to, to tie it back into this movie. I bombed out hard from the Yu-Gi-Oh! National Championships in 2006. I ended up leaving the tournament after four rounds, I believe. And the reason for this was because I wanted to spend time with my family touring San Francisco. As a New York kid, as someone whose parents as well were New York people, I really wanted to see a new part of the world. And I ended up leaving the Yu-Gi-Oh! National Championships after a few hours and not playing the whole way through because I wanted to get a sense of what the rest of the world was like, what the San Francisco aspect I've never experienced was like. And I'm so glad I did because me and my parents got to tour Alcatraz. We got to tour the uh, the, the Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory is another one that comes to mind. We got to see that really weird curvy street in San Francisco, which has no business existing, I just want to say. But one of the things that really stood out to me, and this is where it'll tie back to Princess Diaries, I swear, Zach, my parents and I went to the Penny Arcade Museum. And I actually remember my father doing the arm wrestling contest that Julie Andrews does in this movie. How cool is that? Is, is, that? Is, my, is, is that what this story built up to for the it, last it 10 built up. It built up to it because I want to tell my story about Yu-Gi-Oh! I love that shit because, once again, you know, I'm playing Cyber Dragon Monarchs prior to Ryza. I'm, I'm in the also the age of Return from a Different Dimension prior to Dark Arm Dragon. God, I could talk to... I could talk to you about Yu-Gi-Oh! for years, but that's the thing, Zach. The shot when we get Julie Andrews arm wrestling a robot is literally what I have seen my father do in real life. And, Zach, I, I am very happy to tell you, since you know my father, my dad beat the robot. <laughs> so you're saying your father is stronger than Julie Andrews using two arms? Yes! Yes! Zach, is that the moral of the story, Rob? I don't know if it's the moral, but I just want to say thank you to you, to this podcast, for everybody letting me tell that story. Because that was – it still is. It's one of my fondest memories in life. Like I literally won a trip to San Francisco, and this movie recreates that. And, you know, 15 years later, I'm able to say, holy shit, I was there. Like I did that stuff. And also I ate so much clam chowder. Like, bread bowl clam chowder on the pier of, you know, the Alcatraz Beach. Holy shit, Zach. I ate so much of that. <laughs> so, that's—I don't, I don't think you have anything to respond to me with, Zach, other than the, the fact that I got to watch my dad beat someone to arm wrestling that you're not really surprised by because my dad's a fucking jacked fool, if I might say so myself. But 
thank you for letting me tell that story. This is a wonderful story in my time of life, and I hope that our listeners like the chance to get a, a little background illustration of Rob. Is that fair? Don't, don't don't thank me, Rob. Thank the audience that still hasn't turned the podcast <laughs> off yet. Also, Corella's kind of great. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, I, I'm so glad that uh, the audience and you let me go on that tangent. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> I I hope you're happy, Rob. I hope you're happy. Uh, Interpret Zach, it however you will. Zach sounds kind of checked out at this point. He's He might not be happy with the tangent I just went on. I would like to go on an, another location tangent, if I might. Is there is there any is there any way for me to stop you? Like is there, no is, no not at all. Zach knows I have editing power at this point, and he's very upset about that. So Anne Hathaway's character, her name is Mia Thermopolis. Oh, I hope you're going right. I, I hope you're going just the way you hope you. I are. have no fucking idea what you're talking about right now, but Thermopolis, the city in Wyoming, is one of my favorite places in the world. Like, literally, I have gone to Thermopolis probably five or six times. You know, got a hotel room, stayed the night, that type of thing. Thermopolis, Wyoming is one of the greatest, greatest places I've ever been to. It's up there with kind of like San Marino, Italy, where you just have this unique flavor of what a country can be. And I request everybody, if you ever have a far out west like United States travel trip, stop in Thermopolis, Wyoming. It's fucking great. Is I, I, I can't imagine that's where you thought I was going. <laughs> no, not at all. Where did you think I was going? That's what I'm curious about. Greek? I thought that her name is like Thermopolis, and I thought she was going to be Greek. Oh, maybe? <laughs> I don't know my... I, God damn. Now, jeez. I feel sad now that you say that, that I'm a stupid American that likes random places in Wyoming. <laughs> it's... It's it's something else. The, the the locations that this movie, you know, kind of pulled for me feel so important. San Francisco, Thermopolis, Wyoming. Uh, it, it is a huge part of my life that centralizes on how I feel about these things that it made me think about this movie. So, Zach, I'm glad you let me go on those diatribes. I am totally 100% wary that you are probably like Jesus Christ, Rob. This is why we only have five patrons on the Patreon. <laughs> but if I could throw it over to you, what do you want to say about this movie? Is there any scenes? <laughs> is there is there anything that you really want to talk about? I know we've established the fact that, you know, you and I find it very boring. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet? And this is kind of crazy also because I think we're just a little over an hour into recording and we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> I guess it, I think I've said most of my piece for this movie. It's just like, like other than highlighting a couple scenes here or there, like my favorite character in the movie that's not Fat Louie is the bodyguard character. Oh, I, oh okay. I, Joe at least feels like the actor portraying him at least feels like someone who is trying with what little he was giving. Um, the great Hector like, Elizondo, also, absolutely. Yes, yes. And he's in the second movie. His entire subplot is just like a mess. Like, we'll talk about the second movie in a moment because that's okay. just like, it's it's a nightmare, the second film. Like, the first movie might be just like hollow. The second one's just like, oh, God, it's malignant. It's... <laughs> It's bad. Second one's a disaster. Like it's really like like Rob should Rob should have had to watch the second one because he had a lot more to say. 
Yeah, we we took the we took the stance of you know a few days ago saying let's just watch the first one. Maybe it'll be a shorter episode. It'll be easy to edit. We'll get it done. That type of thing. Uh, which I did not watch. Zach did or has knowledge of it. I watched Jesus. the second one because after I watched the first one, I'm like, there's literally nothing for me to talk about in this movie. So I'm like, I need something <laughs> to latch on to. And the second one definitely gave me something to latch on to, except for it was for the worst. I don't know how you picked up on that because after I watched the first movie, I went, Jesus Christ, Fat Louie, how did you not get cast in everything following this? <laughs> I know. He's feeling like the dog in Frasier. Um, but okay. <laughs> Can we please talk about? He the should fact have been like, Frasier in Frasier. What are you saying to me? Fat Louie should have been Frasier. <laughs> he's Kelsey Grammer. Um, uh, Toss but, salad okay. and scramble eggs. I'm Fat Louie. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like in this movie, what is like? Is there an antagonist in this movie? Ooh, uh, bad high school friends. Which is, is a, which a it is? it's a poor answer. I, I'm with you. That's a poor answer. Who who is like that's the thing. Like 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 Mia's like who is the force that she has to overcome? Her own insecure is her yeah. insecurity. Oh, that, the that's antagonist? a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Her own problems with it's a it's a refusal of the call to action movie. The call to action comes in the first twenty thirty minutes where she has to be the princess and she refuses it and has to but overcome the, but that. But that's the thing, though. Does she refuse it? Because she pretty much has no agency in this film at all. Well, she go, Basically, anytime someone suggests well, something to her, she goes along with it. She refuses it in the sense that we see her saying no, but then grows to Immedi- that sense. But she doesn't, in... though. But, like, like, that's the thing. Like, like Julie Andrews comes to her yeah. and is like, oh, yeah, we want to do all these things. And her mother's like, yeah, just do it for a couple of days and see how it feels. Mm-hmm. And she does it. And then, like, even at the end of the movie where she's like, yeah, I'm not really going to do this. Then she finds, like, a letter that Fat Louie is sitting on, and she's like, yeah, I changed my mind. And I'm like, oh, it's like, like, she she just, she has no agency, and when she does, she is so, just, she waffles on it so easily. She's like, yeah, I, I'm not going to do this. I don't yeah, know I if, am. I don't know if she doesn't have any agency. She she wants to get kissed by Hot Boy, which I think she we can all agree She gets kissed by Hot with. Boy and realizes that there is no passion to kiss by, uh, Slick back hair man. She, well, he's a I think that's, boy. that's the thing is that, you know, she has a clear goal, which is to be kissed by Eric Von Detten, which I think that everybody has that, that goal. Hold on. That, don't, that doesn't become a goal until halfway through the movie. She's no, like, oh, you, yeah, I want to see my leg pop. What are you that talking about? No, that's the first the time it's, a, it, it's talked about. But in the beginning of the movie, when we see very disgustingly Eric Von Detten bite yes. the bubble gum of Mandy Moore, she has the the experience or the hallucination of being kissed yes, by Eric you, Von Denton. Thank, thank you for saying hallucination, by the way, because that's exactly what it and is. So I, I'm, I'm against what you're saying is that this is established from the immediate no, no, but what, outset. No, but what I know, but we get the whole thing about the leg popping. The leg popping is a well, crucial the facet le- of The it. leg popping is how she wants to feel intrinsically. The actual kiss is the, the out. Out is outrinsic a word? Extrinsic, I guess. Oh fuck, uh, the extrinsic feeling of this teenage girl. I thought that was fine. No, but the thing about it is that, like the the I, yes, she wants to be kissed by hot boy. Like we get that. Like, oh, he's I, the hottest I, boy too. Eric Von Denton, okay. hot boy. Okay, yeah, I'm not gonna argue that. No one knows that. Like, that. but the elaborate like thing of like the leg pop doesn't become like a key like thing that she has to accomplish until it's 
made aware of to the yeah, audience. No, about you're, not, you're not wrong. That's the extension of what we've been seeing her character want from the beginning. The leg pop is the kind of, you know, now that I've become a princess or know that I'm a princess and I, I'm learning to, to do these things, it, it's, it's kind of a parallel existentialist, you know, kind of growth of, well, now that I'm a princess and learn how to sit straight and deal with things, I want my leg to pop as well. It, it, they grow in the same way, as far as I'm concerned. But don't you find it odd that like we're not introduced to that until halfway through the film? That particular like no, she wants no, not at all. Because that's what I'm saying is that she had to learn it. She didn't learn it though. It just comes out of nowhere. Nobody, Julie Andrews doesn't sit her down and tell her, "Oh, you're like if you're in true love, your leg will pop." You're not wrong. There is that it's not established in the context of the movie. But what I'm saying is that as a character, I think that she becomes more mature because of those princess lessons, and that maturity starts to bleed over into what she wants so, as a teenage so what, girl. So what you're saying is that maturity and leg popping go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah, Cruella's great. <laughs> I literally did spit take. I literally. I I thought. Oh, Rob, Rob what the is... hell happened to you? What this the hell has happened to you, Rob? This is fucking crazy. This is Rob fucking record... crazy Rob that the fact re... that. Rob has recorded drunk episodes with me on numerous occasions, <laughs> and yet now I'm genuinely concerned about his well being. This is fucking Why? crazy. I'm the one whose job is to defend the crap that Zach produces, picked not a you. Disney movie. And I liked it more than he did. <laughs> I, that's two crap Disney movies that you're, like, rallying to. I don't like this. This is kind of unnerving now. <laughs> Wait till we get to fucking Henry Selick. That's a whole different story. That's, that's different. I mean, what's going to happen? I'm like, Rob, we should do the Lizzie McGuire movie. And Rob's just, like, ecstatic about it. And I'm like, yeah, I love this. And Rob's like, no, Zach, but this is, like, the greatest thing ever. I'm like, oh. No, I, I think that there is a level of realism to Mia's character that is grown throughout the no. tales no. of the story, and it works fantastically. That's why I give this movie some credit, you know? I think we're both in agreement. It's boring as hell. It might be painfully boring at some points. But at the end of the day, like I said, I find that last 10, 15 minutes absolutely transcendent when she realizes what she is and deals with her insecurities. It's it's kind of... Uh, God, I mean, I'm also... I'm not, like we said before, I'm, I'm not hiding the fact Anne Hathaway is a beautiful woman. That... <laughs> Like, the only thing that this movie might be missing to make it three stars, like I said earlier, it's a two-and-a-half-star movie. If she smoked a cigarette at one point, I'd be on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, Rob. We, yes, we all know your affinity for cigarettes. If only Lucy Liu were the one uh, lighting it for. Please don't crush my soy nuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, be careful. Please don't crush my soy nuts. Your soy nuts are safe. Okay, I want you to do something. Describe Mia's character. Describe her personality attributes. Not not that she's a klutz, but personality. In the same way, I would describe you as an intellectual, well-read. Oh, thank like, what, you. Like, like, what do... <laughs> that was very that was very nice of you. Fuck Zach. you, Rob. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> that should be our like pull quote for the cinematic series. Alcoholic. <laughs> uh, Anne Hathaway. Describe her character. No, she's not a, Anne Hathaway, Mia. Mia. Mia is a very homely, invisible girl. That's a no, no, that's a physical attribute. It what? Count. No, it's not. No, it is not. <laughs> anybody, anybody in this world, 
If you're invisible, you have a superpower. We're talking legitimately not seen. We get a we get a, a an exact scene when somebody sits on her and goes, "Oh, I didn't see you there." That is not a physical attribute. That is how other people see her. Invisible is a key word, folks. I think at this point in the conversation, we can just go directly to the snacks and cinema status. Because I think <laughs> I think I think I've made my point loud and clear. I think to the audience at home, that is uh, understanding of. Please cinema. They... don't crush my soy nuts. <laughs> I she think everybody is who's an invisible, homely-looking girl. That has to deal with the adversity of her own insecurities, driving herself to understanding what it means to speak in public and be seen. It is wonderful. Look, if anything, even though I think this movie is boring and, you know, painful to sit through because it's fucking almost two hours long, it's way too long, it feels this length. At the end of the day, that's why I find that last scene so transcendent. Mia learns how to be a presence. She knows, after all these things, how to come across to a room full of people. If that is important. Whole, if okay, fine, I'll concede that. But it all. But the problem. My problem is that if only the film could sit there, could have done that the entire runtime, I would find uh, it much more. Forgiving. Okay, I could. I'd okay. be much more likely to forgive it. That you're not wrong there in the sense that for a lot of the the bulk of the movie, I forget that she was invisible. I I forget the fact that you know she has problems public speaking, and it comes up a little bit when she gets outed as a princess. But the movie doesn't really care about the fact that she's a princess. It cares more about the fanfare around her and her media presence. I I'm with you there that we should have had my, something in the middle to bolster the fact that she has problems with public speaking. Can, can, I, can I please state that at the end of the movie when she's like giving her little like press conference thing to like the crowd? What am I going to do if I, I say no? Like you just asked me, <laughs> that's can fine. I? I'll, what move am I gonna I'll move do? on. I'll move on. I'll move on the late night status. That's fine. I'll just go right past you. Um, I like how at the end she's like doing her little press conference, and at one point I suspected her to turn around and be like, like hold up a cue card, and then like look over the Terrence Howard and be like, <laughs> okay. "I am Iron Man." And then we cut to like ACDC, oh, like oh like smash God. guitar riff. I am so like, glad that you said that. Yeah. I thought that was literally what was going to happen when she does the speech at the end. I was I was a hundred percent thinking the same thing. She go, "Aya, aya." I am a heroin addict. <laughs> <laughs> I want great, that, Rob. If the great. movie ended with her announcing to the world that she's Iron Man, I've been like, you know what, movie? God damn it. I, uh, God damn it. I am addicted to blow. <laughs> 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 oh, that, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> I'm glad Rob's amusing himself right now. I hope we're amusing the audience. This has been one of the goofiest episodes in a long time. <laughs> All right, can I, Rob, unless you have anything else to say about this godforsaken movie, can I please talk about a little of the Princess Diaries 2 royal engagement starring well, Captain Captain Kirk? I, <laughs> yes, of course. Chris Pine uh, makes an appearance in the sequels, which I, I did not watch. I, before you get into that, I would really like to talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff that I watch for this Ooh. movie. Oof. And and yes, like I mentioned at the start, I did watch all the deleted scenes. I watched the behind-the-scenes making-of documentary and things like that. Th there's really kind of three things I want to harp on. Uh, one, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff is Gary Marshall, which makes sense. He's the director of the movie, and uh, he has a lot to say about the making of the movie, things like that. He describes Anne Hathaway 
as a combo of Judy Garland and Harpo Marx. I, hmm. I don't know if that's okay these days. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to mention, which comes across as incredibly strange, that when Gary Marshall was filming this movie, and from what I've gathered from him talking about, you know, filming any of his movies, he likes to run it as a camp, as a very fun type of thing, where, you know, his, his actors and actresses and his crew get to... Uh, endure a very communal experience that lets them, you know, uh, feel as a whole type of thing. And, you know, this comes across in the behind-the-scenes commentary when they do a a, uh, a pumpkin carving contest, which is fine. I have no nothing wrong with pumpkin carving. And that's really fun. There's actually the, the like, special effects team makes a pumpkin that, like, explodes... And turns into a smiley face as it explodes. It was really fucking cool. But here's the thing that really threw me off guard. When they were filming around Thanksgiving, they held what Gary Marshall calls a Thanksgiving parade. And I'm doing air quotes when I say that. Where they had, you know, it's not just one costume. It's not just two. It's not just a parade. We're going to have everybody from some department be in a costume to celebrate Thanksgiving. And in this process, which you can see on Disney+, Plus, I'm not making this up as some distant, you know, research I've done. You can physically fucking watch this shit. Anne Hathaway dressed up in suspenders to, to hold the, the, the vertical floor up as a Thanksgiving dinner. And as she was wearing these suspenders to hold up this table, she wore... A fucking sign on her that said, Gary Marshall's Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Can you imagine a young female woman today wearing a sign saying, XYZ, this person's <sighs> dinner? How weird is that, Zach? <sighs> to the early 2000s, man, it was a different time. Fucking Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's the intro to a porn. Right? Right? No comment, Rob. No comment. Oh, God. It was the weirdest fucking thing I've ever seen. And like I said, if you go on to Disney+, Plus, if you watch the extras, if you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff, you can see Anne Hathaway wearing a sign that says, Gary's Thanksgiving Dinner. And it is disgusting. <laughs> disgusting. That's kind of the one thing that really stood out to me. Other than that, you know, I think some of the stuff that I want to talk about will come up when we uh, when we get to snacks and things like that. But um, it's kind of weird. Once again, I think the point I want to make is that we, you and I, Zach, had this issue with this movie. And uh, I'm more for this movie than you are. I watched all the behind-the-scenes stuff. And uh, it was kind of fun. I kind of liked it, you know? <laughs> as long as you're happy, Rob, that's all that matters. Okay, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, one of the things that we did not get to in our main discussion, Mandy Moore. Is Mandy Moore the worst actress in the world? No. No? Oh, I don't think so. No? She sucks! She's a pretty good voice actress. No. No! Even in voice acting... <laughs> She's a fucking lunatic loser. She cannot do anything. And this is something I wanted to bring up because 
uh, when we did very famously, you know, Ben, Justin, and I did our Southland Tales episode, I said, this movie's amazing, which I still hold, you know, the fucking, I will shoot up a bank to prove that, you know, Southland Tales is good. And they were like, uh, my, my big take from Southland Tales was every single performance in this movie is good except Mandy Moore. And both Justin and Ben were like, no, what are you kidding? She's fantastic. And she fucking sucks. And this is the movie where I'm like, well, maybe it's not the fact that in Southland Tales she's supposed to be playing a drunk woman because that's the the point of the, the impetus of that scene is she's being drunk. I think she just sucks as an actress. What Zach, what what do you have seen her in that makes her good? Uh, a walk to remember. I s- no, oh, I've never seen that. I thought you were gonna say. Oh, denied. I thought you were gonna say. Isn't she in uh, John Tucker Must Die? No, she's not in that. I thought she was one of the, the lead girls. No. No. Okay, Zach is shutting me down hard right now. <laughs> I thought she was, like, one of the, the main dates in that movie. No. I, oh, God, okay, I'm, I'm doing a Google right now. Oh, God damn, I'm thinking of Britney Snow. You suck, Rob. I, I kind of do suck. That was a big, a big fail on my part. But honestly, I want to know what you think, just in general. Um, Mandy Moore, is she the worst actress ever? No. <laughs> she's and terrible. She's a, decent enough voice, she's a decent enough voice actress. We're we're living in the fucking Twilight inverted universe where Zach is telling me how good a voice actress is. <laughs> I don't like her in this movie. I guess to get back to Yeah, I know we've established that. This movie, what do you think about her? You know, she has the scene where she like sings and dances as the lead woman in a um a, a beach performance that gave me real hardcore Southland Tales vibes because she sings and dances at the end of Southland Tales. But you really you you like her? Why? Why? She's I guess fine. is my question. She's fine because of the pop music, Rob. Do I really need to spell it out? Oh, oh! You just hit the nail on the head. I get it. Zach likes Mandy more because of the disingenuous, vacuous pop music. <laughs> Absolutely. That was, that was a lot of unnecessary adjectives to go before that. But uh, as an actress, it. she sucks, dick. I cannot. <laughs> And Mandy Moore. She's so fake. And that's how I felt in this movie where they're like, we're going to you change into this dress in the... In the, in the, in the, in the like, I can't even remember the lines. Her literal, the way she speaks is... And it's the goofiest, stupidest thing I've ever seen. Do you guys want to help me? Yeah, you know, Josh is such an idiot. We're going to make sure no one bothers you. Thank you. You are a very peculiar individual. You know that, right? Uh, Zach loves that about me. <laughs> Rob, you want to know something I just learned right now in this moment as we're recording How good Corella is? <laughs> no, that Richard Kelly, his three directing projects are Donnie Darko. Southland Tales South and the Box. Tales. Yes. I don't... did not know he directed the box. Don't, I never no, that until right no, now. No, there's no way. For how many fucking times I've talked to you about Richard Kelly, there is no way you did not know he directed no the box. I love the I okay. I love the box as a concept because if that were like my life, I would literally just be like, I, "Have I told made that joke to you before?" I oh oh my oh my god. I'm have having, I I'm have I a ever fucking aneurysm right now, Zach? <laughs> I, I thought we've talked about joke? the box 
weeks before. We've talked about it. (laughs) Jesus Christ. It's the only Richard Kelly movie I've never seen because I take the same stance on Richard Kelly that you take on David Lynch where it's like I need to space out what I see from him, that type of thing. I've Have never I ever told you my Jesus story about the box. Christ! I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Have I ever told you my story about the box? I'm just keep saying it to you. No, you say, yeah. no, you have not. The only thing I know about the box is that Cameron Diaz has ugly feet and Frank Langella, Langella has ugly face. That's the only thing I know about the box. The pl- the 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 premise based on the trailer for the box is that like, oh, if you push this button in the box. Some random person will die and you'll get a million dollars. Yes. And my joke was when that movie came out, I'd be like – if someone rang my doorbell and said, if you uh, hit this button, someone will die, I just pushed the button to be like, I didn't even tell you about the money. I'm like, no, I'm good. And I just shut the door and let the person walk away. I'd be like, can I hit it a couple more times? Like I'll pay you. Like I'll pay you a million dollars to hit it a couple more times. And that'd be, that was always my joke about that movie. I'd, like, I'd just be like, OK. I don't need the money. I'm good. Thank you. When you say that, I'm just imagining, you know, Frank Langella with the fucked up face comes to you and goes, Zach, you can push this button to get millions of dollars, but someone will die. And immediately, Zach is just hardcore fucking pounding the button. <laughs> I am, I am, yes, I am just smash, I'm smashing that button, <laughs> like the subscribe button. <laughs> Odd and even times. Uh, Southland Tales is a fantastic goddamn movie. <laughs> Speaking of which, Mandy Moore, like I mentioned, uh, when when I watched uh, this movie, Princess Diaries, and Mandy Moore was doing the uh, the beach musical scene, that's like hardcore Southland Tales vibes because Mandy Moore does a musical number at the end of Southland Tales. Mm. Yeah, just just wanted to say that I, I didn't expect any more of a response than mm, from Zach. <laughs> Rob, can I please talk about the Princess Diaries 2 Royal Engagement? Yeah, yeah, you know what? I I guess I have so many fucking notes on this movie about things and Do you, you really? Know, I I wrote a lot about this movie. I kind of like Why? it. Why? I kind of like what it. What is wrong Zach? with you? Jesus Christ. What the, I, am I cons- am I cons- Can I, I watch Cruella in peace? Can I watch Cruella in peace? Please, <laughs> Rob. Do I need to concern that you're going to see Black Widow this weekend? Like, oh, I'm no, 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 concerned. no, 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 no. You do not have to worry about that. If Zach is like, I'm scared, Rob. You might be a different person. Maybe it's kind of weird that I love Corella. Maybe it's kind of weird that I had some positive things to say about the Princess Diaries. But at the end of the day, I'm still the person that goes hard in the paint for Anomalisa. Let's get that straight. <laughs> I don't know, Rob. I've never expected a universe where I'm hard on the Princess Diaries and you're not. Uh, the cat's name is Fat Louie. <laughs> That's fine. He's Fat Louie's the, the best. He's the only person maybe trying. <laughs> I would love, Zach, for you to tell us about the sequel, which I did not watch. I would love to tell you. I would love for us to tell us where this kind of, you know, story goes, if if you will. Okay, the second movie picks up like it supposedly takes place five years after the original. Okay, but it literally picks up right after the first movie ends, even though they tell us there's a time jump. So, it begins. So with, speaking it of the sequel, with, I I just wanted to mention this because I when we set up to record, um, you know, we we had the thought that we were going to do Princess Diaries. I did record from my computer both the first and the second movie. I'm pretty sure in the second movie, it starts in a camera shot of a car going through Genovia, the fictional country that Anne Hathaway is a princess slash queen of. There's a Panera Bread 
in Genovia. <laughs> is there? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very certain that in the, the opening seconds of Princess Diaries 2, we see the limo driving through the city and we see a Panera Bread in the background. <laughs> I did not know that, the more you know. Uh, how uh, fucked up is a Panera Bread in an independent European country? I really don't like that, I guess. <laughs> and that's fascinating considering that like Panera wasn't really a big chain in like 2004 yet. Yeah, yeah, that was when they were still up and coming. I think that was the time, early 2000s, when was when fucking Panera was like, you know, hey, we make chicken noodle soup. <laughs> and everyone was like, so does everyone? <laughs> are, we, are, we, are we getting to a point now where we kind of acknowledge that Panera, Panera Bread is just McDonald's for people who aren't clever enough to oh, like yeah. figure out what the drive through is? I would hope so. I mean, if, if I ever meet anybody today who thinks Panera is upscale, I would punch them in the face, maybe? <laughs> That's Panera. the problem. People... Panera is like the fast food bread company. Absolutely. Exactly. It's for people who haven't figured out that drive throughs exist at fast food restaurants. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm one of the people that I, I ate a lot of Panera bread before I learned how to make my own bread, you know? Exactly. Um, no. So what happens is that the second movie takes place supposedly five years later, even though it literally begins with her on a plane looking at the same scrapbook she has at the end of the first plane. Um, okay. It wraps up every single loose thread from the first movie in the first five minutes. Are you talking like... Oh, Kind of legally blonde status with the scrapbook. Oh yeah, literally the exact. No. I, I mean, okay, there's, there's sure. it's funny. While I was watching both of these movies, I couldn't kept, I couldn't help but think of Legally Blonde and Legally Blonde Two. It follows a very similar template. Gotcha. And so basically, it wraps up every loose plot thread from the first film in the first like three minutes. Which is like, oh yeah, remember that guy who like I popped my leg to in the first movie? Yeah, he went off on tour, and we're just friends. He's never <laughs> mentioned again after that. Where's Luke Wilson? <laughs> Pretty much, pretty much. It's like, oh yeah, my boyfriend went to go sit there, uh, get the home plate from uh, the Red Sox like stadium. <laughs> uh, so, so no. So basically, the second film, the entire thing is like, oh, she. It's the exact same plot from like uh, Tim Allen's The Santa Claus Two. It's the exact same plot where she has to get oh. married in like thirty days, or else she lose her queenship. Um, what happens at the? It's one you've probably heard the weird sort of like like what thing on the internet rob that like oh if you take indiana jones out of raiders of the lost ark he has no effect on the plot whatsoever so like in the sense of like oh the nazis will open the ark of the covenant they all like melt and yeah, basically yeah you've well, heard that right oh uh, yeah i've heard that and i think we've touched upon it briefly in the sense that you know the the scene where indiana jones is ready to fire a fucking bazooka at the ark of the covenant and he doesn't because he realizes how important this relic of history is, which I think undercuts that concept of the movie and the movie that you're talking about right now. Sure. Um, the point being is that the exact same thing happens in The Princess Diaries 2, okay, okay. where it begins with like, oh, we have to sit there. Like She has to get married. And like Julie Andrews, like, isn't this kind of like an archaic rule that a queen has to be like married in order to like assume power? Oh, Julie and then, Andrews like, shows up in the sequel? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh, she, I she, didn't she, know that. Okay. She's in it. She's in it just as much as she is in the first film. Oh wow. Um, okay. Okay. They they need an angle for the grandmas in the audience, Rob. They need an angle. <laughs> um, so basically, then you fast forward two hours later, and it ends with uh, basically Anne Hathaway repeating the exact same spiel that Julie Andrews had in the first five minutes, saying sure. it's archaic to make a queen sit there have these sort of rules to have married. Everyone goes. Okay. Please don't crush my soy nuts. 
It's it's the second movie is possibly infinite. It's actually I'd say it's infinitely worse because oh god, Rob, Rob's gonna love this. Raven is in the oh, second film. No. <laughs> oh no! You talking about the cunt herself, Raven Simone? <laughs> the other c word. Um, so yeah, she's in the movie. Um, she shows up a couple times in it. I think she shows up twice. As she shows what? up at the very beginning. What is her? I, she's not. Inter- she shows up at the very beginning of the film, and she's like, "Oh, how you doing, girl?" And we're <laughs> supposed to assume that her and Mia have some sort of past relationship, even though it's not established at all. And then she shows up about two word, two thirds of the way through. Um, in a sequence which is maybe one of the most infuriating sequences in a movie we've ever talked about in cinemodity's history, <laughs> but it's also my inclusion in the restaurant, so I'm kind of gonna like do both at the okay, same time. Okay. There's a sequence two thirds of the way through the movie where Mia has a bachelorette party and she invites all the princesses from all like across the globe. Mm-hmm. And what they do at this bachelorette party, they have a mattress writing contest down a metal slide in the middle of the palace oh wow except the part that's baffling is why is there a giant metal slide in the (laughs) middle of the palace that just comes out of nowhere and then at the end of the movie the climax takes place there and the metal slide just miraculously disappears so so are you telling me that uh raven simone plays like kind of the 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 best friend the heather Matarazzo? no 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 that's oh. the heather Matarazzo, whatever her name is heather Matarazzo, whatever i don't want to pronounce it <laughs> heather she's Matarazzo. jesus christ zach don't, don't you don't you don't do don't not care do Crowley not do that heather Matarazzo is the second best actress in the movie after the cat don't you <laughs> don't you fucking disingenue her <laughs> So, no, to answer your question, Raven shows up at the beginning of the film and during the bachelorette party. Okay. And there's no context for her showing up in either sequence. She's just there. Um, what happens is that she's shoe- shoehorned into the film. That's very solely because Disney the, Channel, she's po- what I'm thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Because she's popular, quote, with the kids, end quote. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. That's what you were describing to me in my think of. You know, Raven Simone showing up in this type of movie is that it's like, hey, we have a bankable star. We need to shoehorn this in there. Yes. Um, I would almost guarantee to say that if you were to watch a second film, it would definitely diminish your opinion of the first. Okay. Okay. Almost um, guarantee. Because, is like, Fat everything... Louie in the second he, movie? He is, but nowhere near as much. <laughs> that was a real thing we just talked about. <laughs> But yeah, the second movie, I would say, where the first one's almost like non-existent, the second one is infuriating because it's it's is let's look at it this way. I think it's fair to say that I look at Legally Blonde with a much higher uh, opinion than I oh, do The Princess yeah. Diaries. Wonderful movie. I would say, yeah. I would say a discrepancy between The Princess Diaries and The Princess Diaries 2 Royal Engagement is that same level of just like one is genuinely good, the other is just nobody who understands what made the first film successful okay. when it came to making the second. The second one, I would say, is just, like, there's also musical cues and, like, like oh, God, needle drops that make no sense. Like, the unfit, like the theme song of The Princess Diaries 2 is Breakaway by Kelly Clarkson. Okay. And if you watch, if you listen to that song, like, it's, for the most part, a rather uplifting song, but it's a very depressing music video. <laughs> it's, they do a needle drop of that in the movie, 
and the sequence that it's dropped into has no relation to either the music video or the actual themes of the song. It's just there because I guess tie-in. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the the second one is I would say well the first one I don't like it, but for the most part I don't consider it a good or bad film. The second one I'd say is an objectively inferior film. On okay. every level. Okay. Even Chris so, even Chris Pine has nothing to do. He's just kind of there as like love interest. Her leg boy, does yeah. her, her leg does pop again for Chris Pine. I will say that. Well whose leg wouldn't pop for Chris exactly. Pine? Exactly. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. My leg's <laughs> popping right now just thinking of Chris, it. Chris, if you if you want to cast hot boy, you Chris you cast Chris Pine. <laughs> but so here's the thing that you just mentioned that I want to talk about is uh, the the music about these things, and and you just said you know that that this music or the second movie maybe the first has some time with music. Uh, I'm gonna do this in a little kind of weird maybe tangential way that if you do any research into the first movie, uh, the Princess Diaries, the one we're talking about, that when Anne Hathaway had to wear. The the curly hair, the bushy eyebrows, as as Gary Marshall himself calls it, a combination of Judy Garland and Harpo Marx. I think that we get to the extent of saying, what is she doing? And here's the thing, Zach. I know you're going to fucking love this. On set, the people who had to deal with Anne Hathaway's makeup in the first half of the movie, the big eyebrows, the big hair, all that stuff, they called that The Beast. And I would like to very quickly say, bump, 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 you're the cat's meow. Meow. Yeah, you're neater than a cheetah. You're an opossum for who you love could blossom immediately. Cause baby, you bring out the beast in me. You bring out, you bring out the beast in me. Your turn, Zach. Throw it over you. Do it. I hate my life. <laughs> Any chance I hear anybody say the beast? You're the cat's meow. Meow. I mean, you need it than a cheetah. <sighs> you are the feline to whom I make a beeline immediately. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. <gasps> You're the cock of the walk. <laughs> You're just as regal as an eagle. <laughs> a pterodactyl. With whom I could be tactile, believe you me. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. When it comes to the animal urge, no one can equal mine. For with you, the urge to merge is working overtime. You got me frisky as a pup. You got me lower than a boa. You're an opossum with whom my love could blossom in any tree. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. Very much. No, no, this is my big solo. Animals are so absurd. When it comes to romance, it's all true, those things you've heard. Animals just want to dance. 
Of all the pets in the zoo, you are the creature that I feature. You are the kitten with whom I could be smitten eternally. Cause baby, you bring out the beast, baby, to say the least, baby, you bring out the beast in me. Like, th- this might be why we don't, Zach and I don't talk about on this podcast, a Mad Max Fury Road, is because they say the beast a lot in that movie, and you would have to just relegate yourself to me singing the Paul Bartel song forever. Because, <laughs> baby, you bring, you out, bring the out the beast in me. Oh, God, it's my favorite fucking song ever. <laughs> But yes, point being, Princess Diaries 2 is bad, not good, mess you up. Oh, we're talking about Princess Diaries? Jeez. Okay. <laughs> I thought we were doing enough for a publication episode. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, Zach has nothing else to say. I I think, you know, before I went on my uh, musical tangent there, I'm in complete agreement with you that the fact that, you know, there is such little care there's such little thought put into some of the stuff in this movie i think before we get to snacks there's just a few things that i wanted to point out as a matter of kind of just relating to this movie and relating to you know reality which i did earlier with my my Yu-Gi-Oh details with my san francisco and thermopolis wyoming details um something that i don't know if it has ever come up before uh which is really interesting. You know, as I actually thought about this and I talked to some other people before Zach and I sat down and recorded this episode, I have never in my life, and I'm talking seriously, never experienced brain freeze. <laughs> Zach just laughed at me. About that. But no, no, honestly, Zach, I, I am... Apparently, it's, it's very rare. And I, I think that I'm one of the people... I do not know what brain freeze is. Like, I literally, I I have fucking pounded cold things into my mouth. I don't experience brain freeze. Any thoughts on that, Zach? <laughs> I pound things in my mouth all the time. This brain freeze thing is something oh, completely well, new Oh, well, okay. I, I mean, we're, we're, pound, we're pounding a lot of things into our mouth. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but no, no I, in, in total seriousness... A hundred percent, as Zach likes to make fun of me because I'm allergic to fucking everything, which Zach always makes fun of me for, I've never experienced brain freeze. Like, I literally do not experience brain freeze. It's it's kind of one of those things that is out of this world. Like, you know, I have people who are like, you can't eat that much ice cream that fast. I'm like, well, one, I don't eat ice cream that fast because I'm fucking allergic to milk. I'm a dairy product antagonist. And two, I've never experienced brain freeze. What are your thoughts on that, Zach? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, the bra- the lactose intolerance is a lie. Rob's also allergic to water. <laughs> I knew you were going to make fun of me somewhat with my allergies. <laughs> the allergy is non-existent, folks. Like, it doesn't exist. It's 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 a farce. <laughs> We could do another whole hour on my my issue with dairy. 
But the thing I want to focus on, Zach, is brain freeze. Uh, do do you have you experienced brain freeze? Sure. Who hasn't? Me. <laughs> I, don't I have. That, I have sure. literally. You're also allergic to water. As everyone, God damn it, Zach, you're making fun of me because you're a goober and we've known each other so long. But I, I really want to make the point that in all honesty, I have never experienced brain freeze as it is explained to me by other people. I have fucking chowed down on large amounts of cold food and people are like, how do you not get brain freeze? And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, literally, I have never experienced brain freeze. And like I said, it's about a 6% chance in terms of humanity that you don't have that reaction to cold food. I have never experienced brain freeze. God, my camera isn't on for Zach right now, but I'm shaking my hands like a wild man. I've never experienced brain freeze. (laughs) Good for you. I like that you put that with a question mark at the end. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the point of this is. The point the point of it is that I'm one of the rare people that has never experienced something that is so common. Congratulations, that... your medal's in the mail. But what do you Jesus want me to do? Christ, don't you think that's fun for a pod? No. Oh my god! Our podcast listeners might be like, Rob and Zach are weird people. Zach likes to make fun of Rob because he's allergic to milk. And now I don't have brain freeze. (laughs) I I think they've been aware of this since the get-go, Rob. I don't think you're telling them anything they already know. You think I'm I'm not doing anything new because they already know I'm the goofiest fucking goober that ever existed. <laughs> yes, that that's the God's honest truth. I just wanted to, Jesus Christ, Zach, I'm trying to think of things for the Princess Diaries. I like to talk about my timing San Francisco. I All like right. to talk about my Yu-Gi-Oh okay, Rob. times. All right, Rob. And now Say I want to share Rob. this Rob, story. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> shut the fuck up! Enough! Is this the best episode we've ever recorded? <laughs> oh my god, audience! I apologize. Like this is just like I don't know why you're giving him money. Like this is I wonderful. Don't say that. I can love I, you saying advo- shut the fuck I, up, but don't tell, don't apologize advocate, to the audience. Can I advocate for the Patreon users to stop subscribing? <laughs> like can I organize a class action lawsuit in their favor? <laughs> Oh my god, God, we're having so much fun. We're having so much fun, Zach. Cinemati or late night status, Rob? Uh, Just answer the goddamn freaking question. Let me look through my notes real quick if there's anything else I wanted to cover. (laughs) No, you are right. Let's get to our questions. Uh, For Cinemati's and late night, for both, I'm going no! Cinemodities, there's nothing about this movie that really makes it odd. This is a goddamn, you know, almost painful slog of a movie. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. It doesn't make it as painful and boring as The Planet of the Apes, which we covered uh, last week or a few weeks ago. But I don't think there's anything worth talking about. And Late Night, the same reason. No, it feels its length. What do you think, Zach, about Cinemodities and Late Night? I I agree wholeheartedly across the board. Yeah, you you hate this movie a lot more than I do. I don't hate it. I think it. No, no. I hate the second movie. The first movie, I just, I'm almost I'm indifferent to it. Okay, okay. So I guess that then brings us to snacks. And oh boy, do I have some excitement for snacks! One of the first things that stood out to me in discussing or uh, watching this movie 
was, you know, when Anne Hathaway first shows up to the uh, Genovian embassy. I think that's the, the title of where the, the princess training takes place. And she points at a bowl and she goes, you got pears in your flowers. I just want to give people pears and flowers. <laughs> tell I, you would, what, Rob. I would just love someone to order like, you know, as an appetizer, pears and flowers. Isn't that great? I think so. Okay, okay. I have more snacks, but I want to throw it over you, Zach. I want you to... Because, you know, I, I've been editing our episodes for the last few weeks, and it's always like I take the stance of uh, talking about snacks. I, I want you to take the stance this time. Zach, snacks, restaurant, go for it. Do it. Do I it. I told you. One snack, I want a thing. I How want good a is Cruella? Cruella's great. Snack. Do it. <laughs> so we get the mattresses. We steal the mattresses from the homeless person outside the restaurant. Um, as a thrown onto a dish, or what, what are you saying? No, 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 I told you in the Princess Diaries too. They have a giant metal slide. They ride mattresses down. And at one point, they actually make a dog do it, which I think is animal abuse. But that's neither here nor there. Sure. sure. So what I want, I want a a giant metal slide in the restaurant that we ride mattresses down. But we get the mattresses from the homeless guy, like from outside the restaurant, like in Times Square. And every time he gets a new mattress, we swipe it from him. He gets mad, and he's like Uh. our endless supply of like dirty used mattresses. Oh, oh, okay. So you're you're trying to take the um the naturalistic outdoor representation and work it into the garnish of the restaurant, if that makes sense? It, it doesn't, but sure, why not? <laughs> it, doesn't. it doesn't like that. Um, okay, okay, I can get behind that. The The thing that I had was um, from the first movie, I would love that we had like a carnival game type of thing. You know, it's something that we had to charge our patrons for and they would endeavor in in a weird kind of just you know cut my losses type of situation where they would pay to throw darts at paint filled water balloons Mm. i i i love the scene in the first princess diaries where you know her and her mother anne hathaway and her mother are just throwing darts at paint filled balloons to create quote-unquote art and i would love for something like that to exist in our restaurant I think that's good. Um, also, I that scene where we're having like the, the, the initial like dinner party and they're eating ice cream to cleanse their palates. Oh, do you yes. know what the hell is up with that? Oh my god! Thank you for bringing this up because Zach, I don't know if you've you realize the fucking endeavor you've just unraveled. The palate cleansing sorbet scene which is what you're describing sorbet, my bad they are sorbet, eating yes. they are eating mint sorbet to cleanse their palate and of course you know um mia uh, Anne hathaway eats way too much of it. it 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 shocks her palate she gets brain freeze which is why i was talking about brain freeze before i don't know if you knew this zach if you research this movie there's more than at least 20 food writers discussing this scene. Really? Yes. So apparently, Anne Hathaway eating the mint sorbet in this scene is one of the most important things in film history considered by food critics, Mm. which I could not track down why. I first saw this and I was like, wow, I've read six different articles about the importance of the sorbet scene. I want to know why. And I kept doing my research. I kept Googling and reading around. Apparently, 
the most important food article in the world is about Anthony Bourdain killing himself, which is a, a, a different story for a different day. The, Interesting. The second most important food article is Anne Hathaway eating mint sorbet, which is fucking crazy to me. Fucking crazy. I have no... I wish I had an answer. I don't have an answer. Literally, you can read hundreds of articles about Anne Hathaway eating mint sorbet in The Princess Diaries. And I'm not kidding you, Zach. I am literally not making this up. It is the number three most important food scene from Time Magazine's 2005 article about this. That's fascinating. I have no fucking idea why. It's nothing. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. And don't get me wrong, I love sorbet. I'm a big sorbet person. As as Zach mentioned earlier, I am allergic to milk. I cannot eat ice cream. I cannot eat foods with dairy because they will fuck me up. So I'm a very big sorbet fan. This turns out to be the most important or one of the most important sorbet scenes in film history. Isn't that fucking insane? Uh, yeah, it's certainly peculiar. I don't know. I don't. I don't know where to go with it. I don't. Know, I. I literally don't know where to go with it. Uh, we're on snacks though, because we're talking about snacks. Um, I would love. Speaking of something we got earlier, Fat Louie the cat as a walk around cat in our restaurant. I don't think I want anybody to dress up like a character as Fat Louie the cat. Can we just have Fat Louie as a cat in our restaurant? You know what I mean? Is he okay? May I make a suggestion or an alteration? Okay. Can we have Fat Louie, but instead of, like, having an actual just, like, cat, like, un gato, can we have, like, a person – we have, like, a, a pantomime horse where we make two of our employees, like, as, like, a giant cat where, like, two like, – one person has to be oh. bent over and the other one has to be slightly, like, like just bent forward? Can we have that? I, I kind of like what you're putting down, but at the same time, I just want this – indiscriminate bored cat in the restaurant too. <laughs> <laughs> you just want a restaurant cat. Yeah, yeah. And I know this is something I thought you would like because I know Zach in real life has cats in, in his house and I I just really want like a like a fat loser cat to just you know, sit on somebody's food. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> like, hey, you know, it's like this cat is on my food and you go, Well, that's what you get for being in this restaurant. <laughs> I can't disagree. Okay, okay. Uh, I think the the last – oh, God, I have two things. Jesus Christ. One thing in this movie that I literally screamed at the top of my lungs about, like 100% I saw it in this film and I made an audible noise, a pizza with M&Ms on it. Okay. Isn't this the worst thing you've ever heard? Yes. Yes. How quickly should we execute these people? <laughs> like, we've had the discussion. I think, you know, Zach and I might have differing opinions, but um, pineapple on pizza, uh, salad on pizza, there's a lot of differing opinions on the idea of toppings of, of pizza. M&M's. I want to shoot this man in the fucking face. I want to publicly execute somebody for putting M&M's on pizza. What do you think? <laughs> I like the idea of M&M's on pizza because it gives you the ability to write things out. I love to send like a pizza to somebody that says like, 
like all these like weird like esoteric messages like written out in M and M's on the pizza. Okay, this, like, this I, might I, be as the a form last of communication. Of wait, 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 as as Th- a form of communication, no, we're I done. Wholeheartedly agree. No, we're done. I'm. Ne- I literally never want to talk to you again based on what you just said, Zach. <laughs> as a fo- no, as a form of communication, I think it's brilliant. As a food object, it's consumption and nourishment. It's enough. I um, I don't like anything you just said. Period. No, even as communication, you do not like it. Absolutely not. Because guess what? <laughs> Here's the thing. You can cut up normal pizza toppings small enough to make words out of. Why the fuck does it have to be M&M's? I hate it. I don't, <laughs> I don't like what you're throwing down right now. I, Like I said, in reality, I screamed at the top of my lungs when we had the word sorry spelt out in M&M's on a pizza. It, I went, no, no, there's even a deleted scene Rob, about Rob, Rob, M&M's on pizza. Rob, Rob how'd you go? No. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I, I was a little concerned there the first time. I was a little, like, there was a little bit like, like, like a question in the air and I'm like, now it's settled. So no! <laughs> when Zach said to me, he didn't like Corella, my response was, no. <laughs> Dude, this is the worst fucking thing. The idea of M&M's on pizza, and like I just mentioned, there's a fucking deleted scene about the importance of M&M's on pizza. This is a fucking war crime. Like, there's there's three things in the universe that should be considered globally and universally punishable by death. One of them is genocide. Like Cruella. No! One of them is genocide. Like, if you want to destroy an entire race, you're fucked up. You're wrong. The second one is M&M's on pizza. The third one, I don't remember. I had a good joke, I swear. (laughs) Zach, this movie is... Oh, God, it's kind of good. I don't know. I like it. Can I tell you, as a snack, can we get rainwater squeezed from somebody's hair into a glass? What do you think? Ew. Ew. Well, well, yeah, uh, uh, you don't like it. I don't like it. But, you know, in the last scene, when Anne Hathaway shows up to the um, Genovian royalty party, we get to see the uh, assistant character squeezing her hair dry, but the water that comes from it is in a champagne glass. I think that's kind of perfect for the restaurant, right? Do like, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, 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 like water glass... Glass water. Is hair? it specifically <laughs> Anne Hathaway's? Oh no, it's anybody's. Ooh. That that's that's why I think it works at the restaurant is it's like, oh, you came in from the rain, you have wet hair, we're gonna squeeze it out into a glass and serve it to people. Do you get a discount if we if you if they allow us to uh, squeeze their hair? I oh my god. Oh my god. Zach and I do not record these things when our cameras are on. I wish my camera had been on for this experience because I made such a facial expression when he said that. Are you fucking thinking that anybody should get a discount? If anything, it costs more. If we're milking them. Don't you dare hit me with a discount. Like, Zach said discount, and I went, Like, I did a facial expression and all facial expressions. No, the rainwater from a hot girl's hair costs more. Well, I'm not saying it doesn't cost more, though, but, like, it's the idea, like, does this, this the hot girl get a discount because we're milking her hair? No! 
No, no <laughs> discount. The word, the use of the word discount is wrong in period. Like I'm saying, I think the the way that you and I could agree on this topic is, you know, we have someone coming to the restaurant and they say like, hey, you know, I know you, maybe we could do this thing. And, and one of our waiters go, hey, you're right. As a discount, as a special deal, we're going to cost more for this. <laughs> mm. Discounts are not a thing. I, I, I hope you never mention the word discount again in the history of your life. I think we should give. I think we that. should give the opposite of discount to anyone who walks into the restaurant and likes Cruella. Oh uh, yeah, opposite of discount is good. An an upcharge for being us making us angry at the movie, you know. And here's the thing as well: if Emma Stone came into the restaurant and wanted a discount, we would give her an upcharge because that's just the premise of the Cinemodities restaurant. <laughs> You're a monster. Uh, Corella is, might I say, kind of great. <laughs> All right, Rob, so how, can I please make a suggestion? Oh, I didn't tell my story about how the A-teens get roped into this. Well, I kind of thought that, you know, you were going to save this for the end, because I have a few notes on how to end this episode, and after you texted me last night, I went, well, fuck me, I have no choice but to play the A-teens in reverse. So, all right, I, folks. Zach, just just, the... just talk about the 18s. Jesus right, Christ. Right. Uh, no, maybe Jesus the, Christ. the previous thing before that is how bad the 18s are at music. Can we touch on that? That, I am not even going to sit there and acknowledge <laughs> that. I'm not going to dignify that with a response. I, I honestly kind of love the fact that, you know, at a, at a lot of the ends of these episodes, I throw myself over to talking about music. And uh, I never have any background or fight back from it. This is this is Zach's corner. Like literally, like Zach is gonna own the podcast for the next one minute. <laughs> Indeed, possibly even eighty seconds. Oh, so fuck. what happens, folks, is that in two thousand six seven, Zach was hunting for new eighties music and came across a song called "Heartbreak Lullaby." which apparently was the official tie-in song for The Princess Diaries boo. in Europe. Boo. Oh, boo. <laughs> boo Ernst? Are you saying Boo Ernst? Are you saying Boo Ernst? I would like everybody to know that uh, Zek has just literally, through the computer, pointed a gun at my head. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the song Heartbreak Lullaby by the 18s was the official tie-in for this song. For, I'm sorry, for this movie in Europe. So it's not I even a, we've we've talked about the 18 before. That is not a good 18 song. Heartbreak Lullaby is a bad song. I like it. Oh fuck. But not a tier pardon the pun 18s <laughs> but it is an 18 song nonetheless so i love it jesus christ i i i knew i wrote down some notes i was like this is maybe this song or this song is what would play in reverse and i knew 
that Zach would have the final say. So, Zach, please, I hope you are excited. Sometimes I laugh, sometimes I cry. Because, <laughs> baby, you, you bring, bring out, out the beast, the beast in me. In me. <laughs> what a Heartbreak f- lullaby. What a fucking life we are living during this podcast. 